0: Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, used to say it's a sin to bore kids with the Word of God, and I've often thought of that statement, and uh, this is anything but a boring tale. But the real question as we read this story is, what does it mean? What What is the significance of this story? We've all heard it, but what application does it have? Paul says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. What does this verse have to do with instructing us in right living and in right relationship with uh, with God? That's the uh, question that I hope we can settle. Now I want to begin by reading the uh, setting to the story, the first three verses of chapter 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah, They pitched camp at a festimim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Uh, Elah in Hebrew Hebrew just means uh, a big oak tree, a terebinth, and this valley was probably named for some outstanding uh, ancient oak somewhere in the valley. The uh, valley of Elah begins uh, up in the high country of Judah, up near the city of Hebron, and runs in a uh, northwesterly direction toward the uh, Mediterranean Sea. It actually drains the Judean highlands. At the point where this uh, confrontation took place, it's about a mile wide, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Long Valley up near uh, McCall. Except the mountains aren't uh, quite that high and it's not that heavily wooded. Right in the middle of the valley is a, a deep uh, ravine, about 15 or 20 feet deep, a wadi that, that drains the uh, Judean hills uh, during the winter rainstorms. The Philistines had made their way up that valley from Gath, which is one of their five city states, part of the, what's called the Philistine Pentapolis. And uh, they had made their way into the interior of Israel and probably were preparing to to besiege the city of Soko. The text says uh, that there were armies, not just one single army, which would suggest that uh, there were overwhelming numbers of of Philistines there. They had probably gathered the armies of all of their uh, city-states and had marched them up the valley. and They were now arrayed in a battle line on the south side of, of the valley. Saul had defeated the uh, Philistines uh, decisively at Michmash some years before, but they had regrouped, and now they'd come back in, in larger numbers, and they were making their way into the interior. That valley gave access to the very center of, of Israel, and, and so Saul had to, had to stop them. So he marched his army uh, to the south, and the, the Israeli army was uh, raid on the southern slopes of the valley. The Philistines were on the uh, on the other side, the place where they met is called Aphas Damim, which may be named for this uh, this event. Uh, the word actually means a "bloody conclusion," which uh, is descriptive of what actually happened uh, there at that place. Uh, for us in English, the word Philistine has a as a negative connotation. A Philistine is someone that's rude and Crude and unsophisticated and lacking in aesthetic uh, taste or sensitivity. But it's really not fair to use that term to apply to the Philistines because they were anything but uh, unsophisticated. They came from a very uh, enlightened, colorful culture. They were actually related to the Greeks. Most scholars place their origins in the Aegean uh, region, in Crete. In southern Greece, in fact, the Bible says that they came from uh, that particular region. It's called Caftor in in the Old Testament, but it's uh, Crete, what would be modern-day Crete. They're related to the uh, Minoans and the Mycenaeans and some of these other cultures that we know about from that uh, period. Uh, I have a part of a Minoan teacup here. You can't see it. I wish you could. It's a... uh, really a nice little uh, cup about the thickness of a playing card and the sort of thing you'd probably drink like this. uh, You get some idea of uh, how advanced this particular civilization uh, was. They were driven out of the Aegean Sea a couple of hundred years before David's time, and that's probably the origin of the story of the Argonauts, if you know anything of Jason and the Argonauts. They were driven out of Crete by Talos and it's probably the historical background of that uh, of that story. They're called the Sea People. They migrated across the Mediterranean, settled in what today would be Lebanon or parts of Syria, and then they began to advance wave after wave through Canaan and, and actually uh, attacked Egypt. Uh, there was a fierce sea and, uh, and land battle that was waged there with, with one of the Egyptian pharaohs, Rameses III, and and they were eventually able to drive them out of Egypt and back into, uh, into Canaan. There's an inscription on a temple in, in Egypt in, in the city of Thebes. Uh, the battle itself is depicted there, and then there's an inscription under the battle that, that reads, No land could stand before their arms, referring to the, the Philistines. They laid their hands upon the lands as far as the circuit of the of the earth, their hearts confident and trusting. They said, our hands will succeed. Uh, they were a, a fierce race of warriors, loved to fight. They served as mercenaries, as a matter of fact, in the Trojan War. Homer mentions them, calls them the polaskoi I, I just mention that not to give you a, a, a history lesson, but so you understand that uh, this was no small engagement. Uh, the Israeli army was un undermanned and underarmed. In fact, the Philistines had an iron monopoly that kept iron weapons out of the hands of the, uh, of the uh, uh, army of Israel. So they were definitely at a, at a disadvantage when they confronted these uh, fierce uh, warlike people. David, from the very beginning, had an intense antipathy toward Philistines. And it was more than the fact of their political domination. They they dominated Israel throughout most of uh, the period leading up to, to David's time, alternately uh, tolerating and then heavily, heavily taxing them. And there, as I mentioned last week, there was actually a garrison in, in Bethlehem that guarded the well there and uh, exacted toll from people who wanted to irrigate from the well or wanted to draw from it. And uh, David had to confront this day after day. But there's more to his antagonism toward Philistines than just... Uh, the fact of their physical domination. The, the Philistines are described uniquely as as uncircumcised Philistines. There are very few people of whom that's, that's said in the Old Testament. They were uncircumcised Philistines. And I think the reason was they flaunted their uncircumcision in the sense that uh, that they would depend on no one. We don't know what their gods were. They worshiped uh, apparently some Greek gods, but uh, they were basically uh, agnostic as far as as we can tell or atheistic and and took pride in their in the in their own strength. They were humanists. Paul tells us that circumcision is a sign of cutting off of the flesh, that is our dependence upon our humanity, our our education, our wealth, our experience, our background, our human strength. And uh, those are the things that the Philistines took pride in. They took pride in their human ability. And they seem to have a, an intense hatred of Israel's God. Uh, the archaeologists digging at Shiloh, which was uh, Israel's holy place, have found this uh, this immense... Uh, layer of cinders and a burn layer there that describes the terrible destruction that was visited upon that that place. The Philistines sacked and burned uh, the city. There was no reason to do so. There were no soldiers there, only priests. And they sacked and burned the city, destroyed the tabernacle, killed the priests, Phinehas and Hophni, and then at another time uh, stole away the ark and took it off into Philistia with them. They just seemed to have this uh, hatred. Of the God of of Israel, and it was this that uh, incensed uh, uh, David. Now uh, the story begins in verse four with the appearance of the champion named Goliath. Uh, the uh, the the one word champion translates a phrase in Hebrew: the man in the middle. It's a word that's used in ancient literature for a hero, someone around whom. The army centered themselves, an inspirational leader, sort of like Joe Montana. He would be the man in the middle, you know, wherever he goes. He inspires people to great uh, deeds, and and that was uh, Goliath. He's called the champion because he was well-known to the Israelites. Uh, According to rabbinic tradition, we have no way of knowing if this is really true, but according to the rabbis, uh, Goliath was the man that led the assault on Shiloh and was personally responsible for the slaughter of the priests there and uh, He was renowned infamous uh, for that uh, for that deed uh, he 's described here as to his size and his armor uh, he was over nine feet tall which would be even more impressive in those days because people were much shorter than, than they are now. So a six-foot person would be, uh, would be very unusual. He towered over everyone else uh, in that era. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 to 150 pounds that, uh, he, uh, that, he, that he bore on his back. Uh, that's probably a precise figure because David later took the armor. After he slew Goliath, he took the armor back to his tent, and he must have waited. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. Those are like soccer shin guards uh, that uh, warriors wore. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. The uh, Hebrew text uses a word that's translated javelin here that no one knows the meaning of. It might have been a javelin or could have been some other uh, implement that we're not familiar with. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Weaver's rod is that part of the weaver's apparatus on which the uh, yarn was wound. It's usually about two and a half to three inches in diameter, so give you have some idea of the size of the shaft. And the blade of his uh, spear weighed 15 pounds, so that was quite a uh, quite an impressive uh, weapon that he uh, that he carried. And his shield bearer went ahead of him, and an adjutant who. Uh, preceded him with a with a shield to protect him from snipers that might uh, try to pick him off from, from a distance. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, and having come down to me, challenges them to a duel. Why should the armies fight? He says, Just give me a man. Any man will do. Send him out. And, uh, mano a mano, we'll... Uh, We'll settle this, uh, this matter. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So it's a matter of mastering or, or being mastered. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel, throws down the gauntlet, offers the challenge, give me a man, and let's fight each other come on. He says, are you men or mice? Squeak up, he says. And uh, they all fled. (laughs) On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed. The uh, word actually means to fall apart. They just fell into little pieces. Turned on their heels and they ran. And we say, tut, tut. But I can guarantee you that if I was in that crowd, I would be at the head of the pack. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse. Now we're introduced to the man. Uh, This story uh, duplicates some of the information that's given in chapter 16. They probably come from different sources. They do not contradict each other, but uh, there's some repetition. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well-advanced in years. We're given that fact. Explain why Jesse himself wasn't engaged in the conflict. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first was, firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. He was now traveling back and forth from the court, spending much of his time tending this uh, small uh, flock of sheep that uh, were his responsibility. So Jesse says, uh, to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and her to their camp. Israel and the Philistines had been stalemated for 40 days and uh, Israel's uh, army didn't have an adequate supply line and uh, the families were supplying the soldiers. They were beginning to run out of food. And so Jesse sent David with uh, enough food to sustain them. David uh, shouldered this uh, heavy pack, ran the 15 miles from Bethlehem down to the valley of Ella. Left his flock with a shepherd, we're told in verse 20, loaded up, set out. As Jesse had directed him, he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cries early in the morning, and they were going out to take up their battle uh, positions, uh, giving the rebel yell, and uh, drawing up their lines and facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came up from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. The uh, references to his journey across the valley suggest that every day Goliath came down from the, the Philistine camp, made his way Across the valley and then came up the hill on the other side, so that he was literally in their face. That's why they, they turned and ran when he offered this challenge, because he was, uh, he was, he was near them. He was very close to them. And David heard him, defying the armies of, uh, of the living God. And uh, the Israelites told David the individual members of the army that he was uh, gathering information from. Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who, kings him, uh, who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in, in Israel. It's a form of a bribe. Uh, Saul uh, should have been the one to go out and engage the giant. He was uh, the king. He was the commander-in-chief of the army. He was, the, he was taller by far than anyone else in the army, presumably stronger, better equipped. He had uh, iron implements. Most of the rest of the members, most of the rest of the army did not. He should have, have gone to war. He, he had no uh, confidence in God. He was reckoning on his own ability, and uh, therefore he uh, was reduced to trying to bribe someone who would take on the giant. David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And his brother, Eliab, just climbed his frame. Verse 24, when Eliab, David's older, oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger, in, anger at him, and he asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep? In the desert, he insists that he's being irresponsible. We know from the story that David had left his sheep with uh, with shepherds. And uh, then he lied to us what we cannot do. He reads his heart. He says, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. It's so devastating when people attack your character. That's what you are. And that's what was happening here. I know how wicked your heart is. He says, you just came down to watch the battle. And David says, now what What have I done? I just, it was just a word. Why, why are you picking on, on me? You know, David was expressing faith in an atmosphere of, uh, of unbelief and a, and a general climate of fear that pervaded uh, Israel. Israel. In that climate, faith always looks like uh, ostentatious display. It looks like uh, self-confidence, sort of trumped-up egoism. Uh, David speaks with such certainty. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God and brought down the contempt of, of his family? There's nothing new to David, as I pointed out last, uh, last week. David grew up in that climate of unbelief and hostility toward his faith. His zeal for the house of God caused his whole family to, to turn against him. And here's just another example of it. Charles Briggs, in one of his writings, uh, Charles Briggs is a theologian, points out that if you plan to do anything significant with your life, if you ever plan to operate on the basis of faith, you're going to be misunderstood and despised and ridiculed, and you will experience uh, contempt because people do not understand uh, faith. He puts it this way, it's possible to evade a multitude of sorrows by the cultivation of an insignificant life. Indeed, if your ambition is to avoid trouble, the recipe is simple. Shed your faith. Cut the wings of every soaring purpose. Seek a small life with with the fewest possible uh, contacts and relations. Tiny souls can dodge through life. Bigger souls are blocked on every side. Their resistances, he says, are multiplied. And that's what David experienced. He experienced it in that general climate of, of fear in which it's so difficult to act in faith. And he experienced it in the hostility from his, from his brothers. And he experienced it from Saul when, when he, uh, he, he attracted Saul's attention because of the questions that he was asking. And he was taken to Saul. And Saul says, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're just a boy. And he's been fighting ever since he was, he was a youth. And uh, David experiences that, that ridicule and that scorn that, that so often follows when we make a decision to follow God, to believe that he's, that he's capable, that he's able to do what he has, he has said he would do. And uh, you know the story, Saul tried to dress David in his armor. David had never worn armor, Uh, he wasn't used to it, and uh, so he took it off and he made his way across the valley with uh, no spear, no sword, no shield, just his little staff, his shepherd's staff, and behind his back, his sling. Uh, When David started to walk across the valley, he had no ammunition for his uh, sling. He was basically unarmed; he had a weapon with no uh, no ammunition, and yet there was a rock hard confidence in god 's ability i don 't think at this point he knew what God was going to do, but he knew that he was capable to uh, uh, of confronting this uh, uh, this giant. Uh, David uh, came down toward the uh, toward the giant when he reached the middle of the of the valley, he went down into that into that wadi, and for a moment he was lost from sight. And then he began to pick up a few stones—five smooth stones. Now keep that number in mind. Nothing is ever wasted in Scripture. Uh, that number is very significant. So hold that for a moment. We'll talk about it uh, later. He gathered these stones, and and then he began his advance. Uh, against the uh, Philistine verse 41 the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David he looked David over and saw that he was only a only a youth and he despised him he said to David am I a dog that you come at me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods come here he said and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defy. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. God's name is what He is. It symbolizes the uniqueness of the God that we worship. I mentioned last week... Uh, God gave a name to himself, the name Yahweh in some translations, or Jehovah in some of the older translations, is the name that God Himself, God gave to Himself. And He explained the meaning of that name to, to Moses when Moses, asked him, when Moses asked him what does your name mean? He said, My name means I am. I am is who I am. I am with you. I am present with you. What do you need? Do you need courage? That's what I am. Do you need love? That's what I am. Do you need endurance? That's what I am. Do you need wisdom? That's what I am. So when David faced the giant, he came with the assurance that God was what he had claimed to be. He was available to him. He was present with him. Every demand that was placed upon David was ultimately a a demand upon, upon God. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Uh, Ray Steadman uh, used to say that uh, that, uh, Goliath's last thought was, Nothing like this ever entered my mind before. Now uh, we have to understand. David was not unarmed; he was well armed. A sling uh, was a weapon of warfare. The Israeli army had a, a group of men from the tribe of Benjamin that were said to—they uh, had the capacity to sling at a hair's width and never miss. Uh, archaeologists digging in these uh, in these cities from this period find armories where there are large collections of sling stones. This is one from uh, the city of Megiddo. It uh, dates a little bit after David's time, but it gives us some idea of what a sling stone looks like. It's, this one's been worked and rounded so that it's much more true. would fly with have more accuracy. You can see where it's been worked down with a rasp and it's almost a perfect circle. It weighs about 15 ounces. It's very heavy. And... Uh, they tell us that these things were slung out of a sling that was about six feet long, which uh, was developed tremendous velocity. And when this thing would come out of the sling, uh, this uh, missile would travel at about 200 feet per second. That's almost 150 miles an hour. And uh, when this thing struck uh, Goliath, it may not have killed him, but it certainly stunned him, and down he went. And then David uh, dispatched him. And then... We're told, as you read on into the story, that David took Goliath's head, his bloody head, and walked to Jerusalem and nailed it on the gates of the wall of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem did not belong to uh, Israel at that time. It belonged to the Jebusites. And it was almost a, a dare. Uh, David knew that Jerusalem was the city. Of God, it was the place where God eventually wanted His ark to be placed, and the temple to be built. It was Zion, the place of God. It went all the way back to Abraham's uh, near sacrifice of his son Isaac. This is the place which God has provided, and it was the place where ultimately our Lord was provided as the sacrifice. And David knew that Jerusalem had that had that significance, and so he, in in his own inimitable way, took the head of Goliath and posted it there at the gates of Jerusalem to put the Jebusites on. Notice, it's only a matter of time before Je- Jebus will uh, will fall. And we say, what a, what a bloody, violent, ghastly man. And he was. He was. David was a violent man. And he lived in a brutal era. And that's why David was not permitted to, to build a, the temple. As you know, he, he he's described as a bloody man, and God would not let him... Uh, Fulfilled his heart's desire, which was to build the build a temple. So, uh, we're not saying that this is an era in which we we need to exhibit that sort of, of violence. But the question is, what does all this mean? What is the giant? What is the counterpart of of the the, uh, the weapon that that David used? What was it uh, that that set David apart in this uh, conflict? Here's this memorable story, which uh, everyone is familiar with. But what does it mean? What's the significance of it? Well, I'll tell you how I, how I view it. I, I think we all have giants in our life. There are things that, uh, that, are, that are bigger than we are. Some of you know are struggling with the fact uh, 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 of, of your unemployment. You, you, you've been out of a job for a period of time. You're overqualified or there's simply no jobs that match your skills or abilities and you've been struggling for weeks or months and some I know for a year or more. You've been out of work and it, it, that's, that's a, a dreadful thing. It fills you with fear. You wonder, what will my family do? How can I pay the bills? Who's going to take care of me during this time? Some of you are struggling with children that uh, that are drug abusing perhaps. And uh, your children themselves are are not the Goliath, but the problem itself is. How can you confront this issue? Some of you are, are struggling financially. Some of you are, facing into difficult marriages, and uh, that, the difficulty of that marriage is itself is is a formidable giant uh, in your life. You feel intimidated, uh, fearful. You dread to get up in the morning and face it. Some of you are facing some. Decision that you have to make this, this coming week that that fills you with with dread. Uh, whenever you think of it, you begin to to get get anxious, and your stomach begins to uh, tie in in knots. Well, uh, we all have the giants. I have mine. You have yours. What what do we do? How do we face these these dreadful um, appearances in uh, of evil in our life? What what do we do? Well, faith is always the answer to fear. There's no other answer. We face the giants in our life with the same, fear that, or with the same faith that characterized uh, David. When I was a kid, we used to sing a, a song in Sunday school that goes like this, Faith, mighty faith, the victory sees, and looks to God alone, laughs at impossibilities, and says, It shall be done. Faith is the victory. It overcomes the world, the flesh, and the devil. How do we overcome uh, these, the opposition that we experience? Well, it's by faith. It's by faith. But I have to admit that when I say that and when others say that, it sounds almost like Saul's cliché. When David went out to encounter the giant, Saul said, may the Lord be with you, which is just a meaningless uh, combination of words. Didn't mean anything to Saul. It didn't really help David, because he knew that Saul didn't didn't understand. So I recognize that uh, when we sing about faith, when we talk about faith, when I say faith is the victory that overcomes the world, it can just sound like uh, empty words. What do we mean when we say faith is the victory that overcomes the world? Well, do you remember how how David put it when he heard? The giant's challenge. He said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should challenge, that he should defy the armies of the living God? Twice in this passage, in this story, David refers to God as a living God. 32 times in the Bible, uh, 16 times in the Old Testament, 16 times in the New Testament, God is described as the living God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means just that. He's a real person. He's a living being. He's just as real as you are. He's just as real as the opposition that you, uh, that, you faith, uh, that you face. That you face. Whatever you're doing this week in the, in the in the kitchen, uh, out on the play field at your office, at your bench, at your desk, in your car, in your home, wherever you are this, this coming week, in your schoolroom. God is present. He's there. He's real. We've talked a great deal here about the fact that heaven is not up there. It's it's another dimension. It's here, but it's the unseen realm of reality. And our Lord is just as real as he was in the days of his flesh. He is here. He's not all there. He is here. He's he's the living God. And whenever we're we're facing one of these giants, whatever it is, the first thing we need to acknowledge is the reality of God. That he is here. He is present. He is the God who is. As Hebrews puts it, faith is believing that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One of my favorite Winnie the Pooh stories is when Piglet and Pooh are taking a walk, and they're in the dark. And Piglet reaches out, and he grabs Pooh's paw, and he says, Pooh. And Pooh says, Yes, Piglet. And Pooh says, Nothing, Pooh. I'm just being sure of you. And that's what faith is. It's just reaching out and... Taking the Lord's paw by faith, and just being sure of Him, I sometimes do that in the middle of the of the night. I, I have this thing where I wake up at about three thirty every night. It's uncanny, and for some reason I just always reach over and just to check to see that Carolyn is there. She's always there, but you know I just, yep, she's there. I'm just being sure of her. And that's what we do in the darkness. We 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 may not see. But we know He's here. And we just reach over and, and take His hand. And we assure ourselves of, of His presence. That He's able. He, he's willing. He cares. He's powerful. He can be whatever I need to be for that circumstance. And whatever the demands and the pressures are on me, they, they ultimately rest upon Him. It's not my fight. The battle is not mine. It, it's the Lord's greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world our lord said the psalmist said great is our lord and of infinite understanding so what what's the problem whenever we face the giants well the problem is that we just don't acknowledge that he's really there the other problem is that uh, this uh, this awareness of his presence is not something that comes automatically to us it it's always the result of cultivating our relationship with him in 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 the quiet place in those moments of solitude and in silence where we we meet alone with with god our awareness of the presence of god is invariably a function of the time that we are spending cultivating our relationship with God. If we are not spending time with him, then we have no awareness of his presence through the day. We just live as practical atheists or agnostics. We live as though he doesn't even exist. We're like the disciples who in faced who faced with the overwhelming task of feeding the 5000, start adding up figures. That's all they could do. So we just we add up dollars and cents or time or energy and And we fail to reckon on the presence of of God. That awareness that he is a living, present God who's available to us grows out of those times of of quiet, lonely fellowship with him. In recent years, I have, uh, uh, this may sound a little hokey to you, but it's meaningful to me. I have developed the habit of of actually thinking of God as present in those times. I, I'm a morning person. I do better in the morning than I do in the evening. My mind starts to shut down about 6 o'clock at night, and it says, I'm going to go to bed whether you do or not. So I don't really try to do anything at night. And I, but in the morning, I, I always wake up fairly alert, and those are the times when I try to meet with the Lord. You know, that's exactly the way David puts it in one of his psalms. My heart thirsts for you, he says. When can I meet with you? That's a wonderful thought. That quiet time is not, you know, it's not duty or discipline like doing fifty push-ups and a hundred sit-ups every day. It, 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 that's not it at all. It's an opportunity to meet with God. So I start thinking about that. He is there. He's present. He wants to meet with me. He's lonely for me, if I can put it that way, like he was for Adam and Eve when they spent an extended period of time away from him. Where are you? I cried out. Uh, David says, when you say, seek my face, I want to seek your face. It's God calling us, inviting us to meet with him. So I try to imagine. He's there. He's really present. He's sitting right there. And when I read, when I read his words, I try to think of them as, as actually listening to God speaking to me. And, and then prayer is simply my response to him. I ask him questions. I don't understand this passage. What does it mean? I don't like this idea. I can't do this. This doesn't make any sense to me. This runs counter to, to everything I, I believe, and I complain and I gripe and I, it's, that's all right. David did that. I he argued with God, and I and I and I argue with him, and I, and I think of him as actually theirs. One uh, poet put it: "Prayer is nothing more than God's creature answering him." So I listen to him as he speaks, and then I I answer him. I talk back to him, and. And and, and and I think of him as there it's not that I'm conjuring up an image of God he is really there and and it's out of those quiet times of solitude that we're able to walk through the day and remember his presence sometimes we forget sometimes we go uh, through long periods of time and we don't remember and then we remember And and, and my tendency is to feel shame but then I remember that That there's nothing to be ashamed of, that that remembering is God saying, you've been forgetting me, but I'm here, I'm I'm present, I'm at hand. There's one other element, I think, uh, to making God, not making God real, that's not true, he's already real, realizing the reality of God and, and, and its movement toward obedience. The more we obey, the more we know of God. The more we begin to respond to to him and comply with his word, the more real he becomes. Jesus put it this way. He that has my commands and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my Father. And we will love him. And we will make ourselves real to him or to her. Now, uh, there are no instances of perfection in this world. And we're not talking about absolute uh, obedience, but we're talking about developing a, a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness and and moving toward righteousness and asking God to conform us more and more to his character. And the more we move in that direction, the more real God becomes to us. It's out of those quiet times of fellowship with God, and it's out of that of the intent of our heart to, to obey Him, that He becomes more and more real. If you're having trouble believing that God is real, then perhaps you're not starting at the starting place. starting place are those quiet times when He reveals Himself to us and we ask for His strength to comply. And then we can take His presence with us throughout, uh, throughout the day. Now... Um, I want to close with a, with a personal illustration. I, I, there, there, are, there are some times when the phone rings that I clutch. I, I, you know, I don't, it's nothing intuitive. It's that when, when a phone call comes after a certain hour of the night, I always dread picking it up because I, I think I know what it's going to be. The other night I was lying in bed and the phone rang, and it had that ominous ring to it, and I thought, this is trouble. And sure enough, it was. And I was in bed, and I just picked up the phone, and I didn't say much. I just listened for about 30 minutes. And I asked a number of questions, and my heart began to sink. And I was just filled with dread and with fear. By the end of that conversation, I was almost inarticulate. I, I could hardly even talk. And Carolyn got up, bless her heart, went in the other room, and began to pray, and I struggled through that conversation, and I finally hung up the phone, and I just lay and all I could say is I was terrified, and then I remembered i don 't always remember sometimes I forget, and uh, I put on the armor of Saul, or I try to work up some other fleshy way to do to deal with the uh, with the dread, but then I remembered. God is here. He's present. He's in this room. He is a living person. He is as real or more real than the thing that, that I dread. And there was this wonderful sense of relief. That doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes you have to keep on wrestling and struggling. But that, on that occasion, there was an immediate sense that God was at work, both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and I could take my hands off the situation and and let him let him deal with it. I don't always handle it like that. I wish I did. Sometimes my faith fails, and I'm not strong enough to deal with it. But but there was a, there was a time that that it worked, and I'm sure that that there are many here that can confirm that that's their experience. Now let me ask you a question: Why five? stones. Why not one stone? Well, uh, somebody has suggested that it may have been because Goliath had four brothers. And uh, (laughs) that's true, he did. Uh, If you read uh, through the rest of Samuel and in the book of Chronicles, you'll find that he actually had four brothers, one of whom had six fingers on each hand and and six toes on each foot. And uh, there are some strange... uh, Strange people in that uh, in that family, <laughs> but I don't think that's why. I, I think David picked five stones, picked up five stones because uh, he wasn't sure that uh, the first stone would take the giant out. And uh, I think that's the way faith works, as the Book of Hebrews puts it: is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. When the giant confronts us. Uh, we sling a stone of faith and we may miss. so we take out another one and we sling again. Or the, the stone may strike on on the first, uh, uh, on the first sling, but uh, we may not take the giant out. He may get up and come at us again. And so uh, we have to act again in faith. But the main thing is to keep on acting in faith. It is through faith and patience that it is repeated acts. Of faith that the battle is won. Let's pray. Would you, in, in the quietness of your own heart, just uh, pull up the image of the giant that's confronting you today, whatever it is? And would you remind yourself of our Lord's abiding presence? He's there whether you know it or not, He's there whether you deserve it or not, He's always there. And He's able. He's able to deal with what concerns you today. Would you just, uh, in your spirit, reach out your hand and take hold of Him and reassure yourself that that's true and let your heart be sure of Him. And put that that issue, whatever it is that you dread, in His hands. Greater is He that is in you than Anything that is in the world, whatever it is that you fear or dread, whatever it is that intimidates you, could be a habit that's dominating your your life, keeping you in servitude. Just turn that issue over to Him. And continue to do so to the end of your life. Just keep acting in, in faith, fighting the good fight of faith. Lord, we all face these giants. And we want to respond with uh, the same spirit of uh, confidence that uh, characterized David. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the hosts of the living God? Thank you for your greatness. You are of infinite size. And we want you to deal with the giants.